0: Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this insightful episode, we hear from Claire McCarthy as she shares her experience directing the feature, The Colour Room. Joined by Directors UK board member Tinge Krishnan, Claire speaks on her rigorous shooting schedule, working with actors, and the power of the right edit. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi everyone, Um, I'm Tinge, I'm an Asian woman with like a red hairband and a red jacket and I'm bringing you uh, questions to Claire McCarthy. Um, Hi Claire.
1: Hi Tinge, pleasure to be here. Um, I'm kind of a weirdo sitting here trying to distract you from looking at me by the colour behind me. Uh, I have uh, reddish hair and uh, black, like usual, wearing black clothes.
0: Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and so, Claire, your film's are really awesome. Um, we all really love it here. And um, it's just a really beautiful, inspiring piece of work. Um, so I've Thank got a ton you. of questions for you. We'll kind of, you know, ease in from maybe the start of the process. Um, like, how did the film find you or how did you find the film? And what was that process of engagement like? And what was it that drew you to the material? And what was your take on the material? Oh, I
1: was... Uh, I was finishing a job in London um, that we'd we been shooting in Italy just before the first lockdown and we got kind of in the midst of post and the first lockdown happened and I started to kind of reach out and start to take a lot of meet and greets over Zoom. And I, I met with um, an executive um, from from Lionsgate and that he suggested that I meet Georgie um Paget and Tembeza Cochran, who are the producers of this, and said, "Oh, they've got this great project that you'd really like." And anyway, we got on the phone, and we kind of all fell in love. It was a bit of a love fest. We we all had, she realized we shared a lot of the same instincts and aesthetics, and we were kind of all Clarice Cliff fans. Which I um, I knew about her work, but I didn't. And she's down under in in Australia and New Zealand. I'm I'm Australian. Um, her work is very popular, and I I was pretty familiar with her but I didn't know much about her I didn't know she was a working class kind of nobody I didn't know much about Stoke I um yeah I so I read the script and I was just I sort of thought this is just really impossible to me like I found it really hard to fathom how out of nowhere this woman just really had this incredible capacity to just burst out of all these limitations that would have been so sort of apparent to her at that time she she really wasn't set up in any way to succeed, you know, and I thought there's a really inspiring story here about innovation, um, she herself, her career, the way that she kind of figured out how to kind of up upscale and kind of work with broken things and make them, not broken things, but the way she worked with um, flawed b- biscuitware and managed to turn that into money, you know, she was very resourceful and very clever and obviously really influenced by modernity. So to me it was a story, an underdog story, and it was also a celebration of, I guess, pioneering women and looking at a um, at the creative process, which to me in some weird way reflects a lot about the process that we do as filmmakers where we have to kind of present a holy object at the end of the day that nobody really knows what went into it <laughs> and oftentimes the spirit of it is imbued in that object, in that film, but we don't necessarily know what's outside the frame and I think uh, I think the innovation, the spirit, her rebel spirit, it really appealed to me. I felt like she was kind of a bit punk rock, both in terms of her use of pattern and colour and the way she was extremely, she just has this cacophony of 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 pattern and and I just I felt like this is a really cool story. It's not just a boring story about pottery. It's actually a really revolutionary story about the workplace and commerce and the creative process. So I was kind of hooked by that. So we started talking. We we did a lot of work on the script for about a year. The script is already in really good shape. Claire Pete had uh, a really beautiful script and she'd already won a um, a, the BAFTA Rowcliffe Prize. Um and she's a really lovely um, collaborator. And it was really for us about kind of working out how to hone the story more. There was there was more plot in it, more of her life in it, which we felt was sort of, it was that fine line of like working out, a, out what emotional story we wanted to tell versus how much of, I think that's always a problem in biopic. And I felt instinctually that this didn't want to be a biopic. We didn't want this to feel like, you know, we're honouring every single moment of this person's life of which no one would have been around to understand. She's not like a a household name. Her work is, but so few people know about her that in some way we felt tasked to, I think, celebrate the spirit, her spirit, which to me is um, this rebel spirit, this wildness, this sense of innovation and just busting through um, the barriers in front of her. So it was less about... We wanted to honor the truth of her story, but a lot of um the work we did on the script was compressing time and working out what were the pillars of the story in terms of its emotional kind of one of the things we really wanted to tell what was going to hold an audience. We all felt that it needed to have a kind of pace to it. We didn't want it to sort of feel you know for bet for one of a better term kind of I guess maybe period is a bit of a dirty word like it when you when you ever when you mention you know, that it's it's not set now, often you kind of see people glaze over. Um, and so, yeah, trying to shuck off the kind of negative loading of period and trying to work out how to f- have it feel fresh were, was a lot of things that we were talking about in that early period. And uh, then we started to kind of actively shop it. Sky came on board. Uh, we sort of identified Phoebe um we had a bit of a tip-off from someone who was an insider on (laughs) Bridgerton. I'd already known Phoebe's work, but, um, you know, it just sort of was super lucky that we managed to get her before she popped. We kind of knew, I mean, she obviously was a well-established actor having worked since she's been about 14, but... I think it was just like, oh, this is a Shonda Rhimes show. She's she's This is going to be huge. And if we can get her before she pops, this might be really good for the movie. And we, we had to convince Sky of that, which they were really great. They came along to the party. And I think um, it was over that Christmas break of last year that it all just kind of snowballed and we just kind of, for better or worse, naively went into the second lockdown and shot the movie up north. So that's how it all came together. I, I hope my answers aren't too long. I'll try and be less... No, they're
0: great. Actually, I think the, the long answers are really cool. They, there's so much like texture and detail in there that's really helpful um, for all of us. It's really good. Um, yeah. So there's like there's a few different areas in there um, that are quite interesting. One is like, you know, you're talking about the shopping around process and like some of that uh, almost like energetic pushback around it being a period piece and needing to kind of reframe it. Mm. Um, yeah. What What kind of things did you do? What were the meetings like and how did you? work in those meetings?
1: To We did a lot of things on Zoom. I, I think Claire, Pete and I were joking that we never really met each other until she was on set. So we never actually formally seen each other in the flesh just because of the nature of what we were experiencing in the world. Um, but a lot of it was, you know, a lot of us were talking in our meetings, Long we'd have long sessions, um, and I think all of us were kind of captivated by the fact that we we're all in the doldrums, we we're all stuck in our houses and there was something really salient about this Sort of celebration of of Clarice, and that somehow we wanted the film to feel really optimistic. We wanted it not to, you know, wouldn't want to feel like it's an antidote to COVID, but certainly that we wanted people to have fun and enjoy the film, and that that was one of the things that we felt was very Clarice-y was that she's she's so naughty and fun, and there's something about that uh, kind of lifting, lifting the spirit and elevating the spirit that we we kind of you know, we didn't have a lot of resources. Um, we knew that the budget would be very stymied by the fact that it's period, so it was really making the script as lean as possible. Uh, a lot of the things we talked about was the timeline of her life. Um, the events of her life weren't ordered the exact way that we've put them. Mm-hmm. Um, no spoilers. I, I understand everyone's seen the film that's on this call, but there's um, her sister Dot. Um, there's a death um, in the film. There's cancer with Collie with. Um, uh, Collie Shorter, who's her boss, there's a, there's, um, a storyline with those, those characters that sit in a slightly different timeline. So we compressed time a little bit and had um, what was essentially from about 1928 to, nine, to 1935, we kind of compressed that into what was about an 18-month eight, period in the film. So we, by concertina-ing, we felt that it made it quicker and a more robust narrative. And things like Clarice had a lot more siblings so we, um, a lot of them had left home, but we felt, I mean, in early, when I came on board there was I think three other sibs and we kind of felt that it was probably not going to be possible on our budget. <laughs> not that we made all our budget, it was decisions based on budget, but it was sort of just really going what can these characters do? Uh, and also we talked a lot about, for some reason we were talking a lot about um Industrial Revolution and what that really meant at that time, you know, that we'd sort of, it felt like, for me, um, Claris was born out of a really difficult kind of economic crisis. Like we're sort of on, there was an economic crisis in the Staffordshire potteries, I think, in 1926, which had meant that everyone was slightly... Panicked, and a lot of the factories were closing down, and a lot of people were really scared about how the pots would survive and what was the future of this really important sector. You know, there and to me, it was like Clarice became this; she kind of almost marshaled an army. So we started to think about it in terms of like Clarice being not only a unique visionary and a creative, but also she's sort of like pushing back and asking people to listen to her because she has a plan that sits outside the norm and I think that's what I mean by innovation, why I like her so much is because rather than kind of the tried and true cookie cutter, this is the way we've always done it, I think she kind of reinvented that and thought, well, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to try, let's try this other way. Let's see what happens and it totally worked and their factory was producing pottery right up until the late 70s and I think she, you know, I think people really appreciate her on so many levels um, for that that innovation. So, yeah, I think there was all of those components to think about um, and and just, yeah, of course, logistics, how we were going to actually produce a film that could reflect the essence of that place at that time, which struck me early into the process. I was sort of begging, I was gagging to get to the pots because I could, I mean, there's a lot of great archival um, photographs at that time, incredible, um, and a lot of it's of working class people in the streets. And there's also great resources that and books and things like Arnold Bennett was a really fantastic resource. Um, not necessarily literally for Clarice's story, but just to get a sense of like what the black country meant, um, just in terms of industry. Um, he describes that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, like when you were in the street, and that the pots there was like two thousand of these bottle kilns firing up. so even at night there'd be these billows of flame just pluming out in the in the in the black and just this sense of you know pollution being part of people's lives um and that being the atmosphere that people would live in felt like a really interesting possibility and how you would treat colour in that and anyway so there became lots of conversations even early on about what what are the kind of particular issues creatively that we'd come up against in terms of honouring the period, honouring the pots and honouring Clarice. And we had to sort of try to streamline it as best we could as we went. So by the time we were ready to shop it, we'd already made a lot of key decisions. Um, and I to be honest, I think Sky were really interested in knowing who could carry it, who could carry the movie, and who who were the who are the actors that people might show up to to watch on screen. Yeah. You know.
0: And in terms of that, you know, you were talking about like, you know, the, you know, you know, what struck me was like the 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 scope and scale, like on, you know, budgetary, you know, limitations that we always face, you had quite a lot of VFX and, you know, and, you know, you did these exteriors whenever you could. And it, I felt like it really gave it that kind of, that sense of, you know, place. How was it? You know, what were the challenges there in terms of trying to get the scale that I could feel you pushing for?
1: Yeah, um, definitely was a challenge because when I finally did get up to Stoke, uh, there was only really 20 um, bottle kilns existing and most of them were in pieces or really like weeds growing out of them and really dilapidated. (laughs) And uh, there there were luckily two museums that existed that could help to give a sense of what the factory environment might have looked like at that time. But, of course, they're museum pieces, so everything's like you know, got the McLean's pass on it, it all glitters and glows and it looks like ding, you know, and it looks like, you know, ye olde world, you know, where you're kind of like, that's so lame, you can't get away with shooting a film there. <laughs> you know, that horrifying feeling of like, how do I disguise this, you know? And also we went, we as as you do, you know, when you go on your first recce somewhere for a location scout and you dismiss the place that you first go to because you think it's going to be shite and then you end up shooting there because it's the cheapest and it's the place that you have to shoot it for some reason. For us, no offence, it was, it was perfectly fine in the end. But um, we, uh, we ended up shooting a lot at, um, at uh, Black Country Museum, which is, which is great. It's just, it is, again, it's a ye olde world. So the challenges for us, I mean, I, I remember I had this sobering moment early on where myself, my designer and cinematographer, we'd been spending a lot of time kind of drilling into the logistics and we kind of naively put together, we, we started some early visualisations and, um Concept, early concept work and we did like a 3D walkthrough of a very basic build of a what would be been a street, a, a little kind of backyard um, of a, a sort of terrace kind of quadrangle with shared backyards that would have been period correct and the interior of the terrace. And we kind of sent it to our producers and just, like, heard nothing back <laughs> for, like, a week. We're like, all oh, right, okay, so this is just not going to be in a build on this one. Like, this is going to be really tough. And uh, what we ended up doing is just needing to adapt and innovate. We had to work out ways to black up the walls in um, Black Country Museum, like, dirty them up, find chalks that could be that could be scenic onto walls and then cleaned off. We had to figure out ways to pollute the atmosphere, like to um, to create a texture in the air, and we tested a lot of colours for textures in the air. Um, we gained permission to paint some things and to age and texture. That meant a lot to us is, is making sure that it felt like it wasn't clean because it really wouldn't have been and thinking about texture and colour and finding a palette and, a, I guess, a, an emotional story for colour, which we spent a lot of time planning. Um, so I think all of those decisions really impacted the way we um, moved forward and also just we kind of realised that we weren't going to be able to, we had to really think about this being largely a locations-driven film. So we would have to embrace existing locations and then as best we could bend them to our will. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't actually have a huge VFX budget. We did do a lot of set extension, um, so we would shoot eighty percent for reels, and then we would have, you know, some matte painting, which I guess is a bit luxury too, you know. But it's like thinking about those sequences and trying to make sure they don't look CGI. I think that was the other thing is like trying to really build them in into the world or whatever. Um, yeah, so. I don't know if that's answered your question. Yeah, that's
0: really helpful. And did you do with your set extensions? Did you do green screen set extensions or just like?
1: Yes, we did a bit of both. We like a bit of a few things. We did do um, removals where we kind of knew there was only really one angle that we could get a really good exterior shot at Black Country and we knew that we could set extend and it wasn't going to be a green screen, it was going to be a basically we would replace, it would be a replacement of a certain, basically a map painting. Um, we did a lot, of, um, a lot of research about archival images at the time and we replaced, there's a sequence where Clarice walks up a hill uh, with a stolen bag of clay and there was a great archival photograph that we'd uncovered of a woman walking up a hill in the stoke of that era before it became flattened where there was a lot more hills and a lot more constructions and quarry and things going quarries and things going on and so we we basically tried to recreate that but we always knew we would matte paint the background which ended up being a really difficult build but we did use a portion of green screen behind her to because her hair was quite frizzy so we did use a little bit of green screen but um it was very Minimal, <laughs> the the VFX. It was yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And um uh, uh oh. <laughs> so yeah, so just kind of um, you know, kind of connecting to the color palette and the cinematography and everything. Like, what what camera and lenses did you use? And um and yeah, can you talk a bit about the blooms and the filters and the yeah, got to-
1: yeah? So we shot on Arri. Our- Um, we Ari Alexis and we basically had um, I've kind of we discovered Denson Baker is the cinematographer who's brilliant and I've worked with him many many times we had been doing tests on a series of vintage lenses at Ari and we really liked the look of them Uh, we wanted to kind of you know have something that kind of could sully the image or soften Mm. highlights and kind of be kind on skin and and kind of allow us to perhaps have a little bit of within the frame like a an interesting kind of bouquet like that we could actually have something very beautiful to work with and with the color palettes we, we were able to test um which i think is really important i we did quite a quite a few tests before we started shooting proper also because of wigs and color the color palette was quite muted and restrained in terms of the co- costume so yeah, we sort of made a choice that everything that was being worn would have been secondhand and very textured and very handmade and hand spun. And the palette wasn't quite, wasn't particularly broad except for Claris, who had this teal jacket, which was a pop colour. We wanted to see what that would look like before we shot. And I remember there was like a moment where we were like, had three jackets. And Anusha, who's our costume designer, is brilliant. And she was like, it's a bit Gucci. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, but it's fabulous. Should we just do, you know, and, and we're like, yeah, let's just do the jacket. It's really cool. And, and then she took off her own belt and that became her own, that became the belt for Clarice, was her literal belt that she was wearing at that time. But, yeah, we we felt the costume should feel muted except for Clarice is like a bolt of colour and optimism through the film. And then we were toying with the idea of, there being, you know, pops of colour um, through the film. But then we decided that even within a polluted or monochromatic, largely what would have, I guess, been a monochromatic, highly polluted uh, industrial landscape and environment, that there is colour and what are those colours and how can you sort of you know, pull those out and sort of elongate them. And then we started to think about Clarice's colour palette and kind of got really nerdy about it and thought, well, what could be an emotional palette for the film? And could there be an emotional colour for every scene? So we started to think about it in terms of her emotional journey. And so um, orange became really important. And we also found a vintage uh, lens that has a, a rainbow flare. Mm-hmm. So, Which lenses were they in the end? Um, I think they, you know, you got me there. I can't remember if they're Cooks. I'll mm-hmm. we'll have to come back on that. I think yeah, yeah. Um, I can text Denson if you like. <laughs>
0: oh, cool. While I'm going. Was that, was that separate to your main set of lenses? The the vintage
1: um, we had a set of vintage lenses and then we had this little specialty lens which did yeah. the flare. Yeah, and
0: was that in the color room when she was in the color room and you get that little
1: kind of rainbow of spectrum? Yeah, That's we were beautiful. sort of into yeah. into this whole spectrum and you see it a few times um, in the film as well, like when the girls um, are taking Bazaar to the boardroom. Yes, and yeah. at certain moments when she when she's kind of assimilate like when she's kind of galvanizing her. She's truly in her essence. You see this, flag. that's the plan anyway. I don't know. It yeah. a bit Yeah, I, like I think that really, works. It really
0: Yeah, it really comes across. And, um, you know, that, that thing, just kind of coming back a bit to what you were saying about that sense of vision, about a person pursuing their vision and their, you know, their kind of, um, you know, which really comes across with her and that parallel with being a director. Um, mm-hmm. I feel there was so much of that in terms of, um, you know, that, that sense of, um, you know, when she's trying to describe her craft it felt like a pitch meeting at times. Yes. Um, was there stuff where you were deliberately kind of layering that in, you know, when she's talking about, oh. no, you know, and the, when they're kind of arguing about the rawness and the amount of glaze and she's like, no, it's supposed to, like, the glaze. And then the yes. brush are supposed to be rough. It's like
1: yeah and also just the looks of incredulity that people give you when you try and sell them on an idea and they're like what and which is like oh it's an egg cup for me you know it's a puddle duck egg cup and they're like what how old is she 20 and they're all like what you know like they just think she's completely mad um but yeah definitely pitch room you know when you're just in rooms with people that don't get you or Mm. think that you're your ideas are wacky, or yeah, yeah. you know, and really sort of having the confidence to talk. About, I mean, definitely, I find that really funny when you can kind of get a bit of a lightness, well, not a lightness of touch, but certainly that I think you're right. You hit the nail on the head. There's certainly a, a, a kind of parallels journey where you get Clarice kind of, she's almost guileless. Like one of the things that Phoebe and I talked about a lot is that she's sort of slightly she lacks empathy, like she doesn't really care about what people think of her and this lack of awareness was really useful I think compared to Bridgerton where she plays a character that's like super hyper aware and like every hair is in place and she's always got like the perfect chintzy outfit whereas Clarice, like the physicality, the way she moves, her hair's mad you know she 's she 's got this kind of kind of quality about her, like that scene when she has the vase and she 's in the the furnace in the in the the, in the inner workings of the kiln and collie she 's about to get fired for stealing clay and he 's looking at her vase and he 's like well it's it 's good and she 's like mm-hmm. you know like this idea of like yeah i 'm good i 'm awesome like this was something that i we were sort of embracing that um not to say that there 's an arrogance it 's a fine line between trying to encourage people well to support the idea that in going into rooms in which you are the anomaly or mm. you're the one with the with you're the the, the lower the, the lesser represented person in that room that somehow you can still make sense in that room and people will still listen to you mm. if you can hold true to your your essence you know that's kind of like the the thing I like about her you know. So anyway, um. and I feel like
0: that really came across. Like I feel like you really captured that sense of uh, uh, like a, a, a woman on a mission. Hmm. Who's you know her her commitment is to her craft. Her passion is for her craft. And there's that really lovely nuance scene at the end when she goes to see Collie and it, there's not a bad bone in her body. But she's so she's so driven. You know, she's so commit. She's so in her craft. Always just so obsessed. Hmm. Actually, where he's more about her and the relationship she's really about like the color and the pots and then um so was that kind of a deliberate like obviously nothing happens accidentally in front of a lens right so
1: yeah it was it's a really good question because I think um Claire Claire Pete and I we had lots of uh robust conversations because I think uh she wanted it to be more of a romance and I think she thought I was a bit of a stick in the mud because I was like it's not a romance, like this can't be a romance. This has got to be a second story that we don't, get, we don't get seduced by quite literally, like that's not the point. It's not the point that she slept with the boss or that she has this flirtation and that somehow she gets a break. To me that was really dangerous ground <laughs> to start <laughs> walking on. It needed to be more of a story about a woman who has her own singular path and he can see an opportunity to make money and he sees that she's clever and, yes, he's drawn to her and he's falling in love with her, and we want to see that happen on screen, and every scene he's falling more in love with her, even if he doesn't want to admit it himself. Like that's the performance really that Matthew, I think beautiful Matthew Good beautifully, subtly does. But it's not like we need to name it and press into it and like claim it as the main essence of the movie because it's just felt, I don't know, like it would cannibalise the point of the film, which to me was not about making frivolous, I just, I felt instinctually that we don't need to celebrate this romance. Uh, We need to celebrate women artists and visionaries on their own terms because of what they do uh, as women, because of their contributions, their choices. And that to me felt like a pseudo drama or something like it's not the drama it's like we can cleave to it in some way it's true it's enjoyable and I'm I know I'm a stick in the mud to say this but I'm not anti-romance by the way I like a good romance too but I just feel like there's something more powerful in honoring uh someone who's a champion and a pioneer and they can have love too. We let her have love. We just don't make it the story. That was the point. So, yeah, we had a lot of chats about that and and we did have to make lots of decisions even all the way through the edit. Um, there was a particular scene which um, the, scene, the film kind of went from, you know, maybe M to PG all of a sudden <laughs> because of that scene which we we sort of it went on for a lot longer. It wasn't just a kiss. It it was there was more. And we kind of ha- had to make this difficult decision where we really went, you know what? It's not working, you know, and we we I think that was one of the things that was great about the film is being able to show it to people and people you trust and the relation the collaboration with with the producers and people that we fit and of course my editor i mean hoping chen who's the who's the editor i work with she's brilliant like we just really we i feel like we i i mean i don't know i feel like the film is made in the edit and i think she and i just really got each other and we understood what the film was about and we we really put the time in and had that rigor of really challenging the material trying things with material pulling things out and seeing what happens if you remove something sometimes the true thing will will make itself heard. And we tried that about the romance and also the ending was another sort of sticky point of the movie. We were trying to work out how to end it. Like it was always even at script stage, it didn't feel right that it I don't know, it was like there were so many things that needed to be attended to. And the thing that actually happened during the shoot, because we had an enormous amount of support from the local community, who are very, very proud, like they have a lot of pride for the pots. Like there's generations of artisans and sculptors, and people that worked in factories and understand that world, like in a really, you know, deep way. And I it felt a lot of responsibility, sort of making sure that they felt their world was honoured but also people that are collectors that love Claris. We had a lot, of, like Will Farmer, who's a, a well-known um, Claris Cliff collector, he just got all his mates in. He has a show called Antiques Roadshow and he also has an auction house yes. and he managed to pull together like thousands of like legit, like authentic Claris props. Like there were thousands of props in the film. It's kind of mad really when you think about the logistics even of that during COVID and actually being able to have, we, we did make replicas as well for like second like mid mid ground uh props but um a lot of the foreground props were really Clarice originals well they were and um you know that's quite frightening but um <laughs> but it was yeah it was sort of interesting you know trying to work out how to honor that story and not um yeah not get seduced by these other kind of
0: and it feels really the right thing to do like I feel like your instincts um I'm really glad you wanted your instincts because, you know, for um, I watched it with my daughter. And, you know, for that young generation, seeing something that's about a, a woman who's exploring her mojo, who's committed to her mojo, is all about her craft. And, and that being beautiful and exciting and wonderful, that's so important. And, and so I feel you've, you've really, I'm really glad that you held the boundary around that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I was going to say too, um, during the shooting, Will Farmer, who's, uh, who's this amazing um, ceramics um, expert, he actually was at auction and he, <clears throat> he bought a bunch of documents that were related to the period from the pots and he managed to uncover within that an original contract from the period between Claris and Collie in which it had been crossed out from, five, from three to five and and it, and it was in her hand. She's like, I, Clarice Cliff, agree to work for you for five years and then we'll see what happens kind of thing. And it's actually a legitimate document that exists. We were going to actually include it with some of that archival. That was a whole thing as well in my mind. Like, I quite like the idea of hearing the voices of the actual paintresses mm-hmm. and you do actually hear the voice of one of her sisters, Esther, who's the very last voice when she she says also oh, did you know that she was having an affair with Collie and she says ah, ha, ha, and she just laughs that's actually the real <laughs> Clarice's sister but anyway it just seemed when this piece of uh when this contract became uncovered I just kind of thought wow that's a really interesting opportunity because what it shows in that little document to me anyway is the naughtiness of Clarice that she would go and take that contract, cross it out and go, no, you're going to hire me for five years, you know, and she's just like so sort of like sort of tunnel visioned and, and then then we sort of thought let's try and see if we can weave that into the script. It became a very late addition. In fact, we brought pages in at the very last second and we, we tried it and then in the, the last kind of phase of the edit we did a lot of changes to that ending um, and it felt very important that we understood that Clarice was running her own factory at this point that she had, which is what it was. Like she had Newport factory, she had the Bizarre Collection, she was her own designer. We needed to know that that's what she was. So it's a small thing but for some reason it eluded us until the very last part of the edit where we were like, oh, wow, okay, we can't have it feel like he's controlling her journey. She has to be the one in charge and that's going to be the thing that will hopefully hold the movie right to the end because in previous iterations of the the draft, it felt like he was always somehow holding her, you know. So how did you make that
0: hurt? shift in the edit? What,
1: what did you do? In- little things like um, we did a little bit of ADR. Um, we did a little bit of removal of certain pieces of dialogue that just weren't necessary. Like when he came in and she's changing behind that screen, I don't know if you remember that scene in Newport, um, Yeah, he sort of said a whole bunch of things. What he was trying to do in the the script was get her to sign this contract Mm. um, in order to, I guess, metaphorically put a ring on it. Mm. But the thing is that the problem becomes in these kinds of stories, and I think in a lot of female-driven stories, is that that I think the female journey, I I get an impression anyway, and I may be wrong, that a female journey subscribes to different rules than the classic hero's narrative and the hero's journey because often we're not given... Um, we're not given a sage, we're not given a role model. We often can't see ourselves uh, as a, a, a double. We can't find a mentor. We don't see, we don't have that support. And and often we can't be so-called proactive, you know, when people look at your scripts and they go, oh, you know, they need to be in control of the narrative and da 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 da, da. And there were so many times at script stage where like, oh, God, Clarice needs to be the one to, to control the narrative, which is obviously what we get taught when we get shoved joseph campbell down our throats and stuff which is great not saying it's not you know whatever but it's like it's also then looking at what is a what is our female what is our version of a female story what is our narrative how do we tell our stories and how do we take ownership of it in a different way and so yeah it was kind of removing any sense that he's controlling her that she needed to be in utter control so when she's getting changed rather than it being about why haven't you signed this I need to get a ring on it we, we tried to put him on the back foot a little bit that he didn't know what she wanted and that she was in charge and he didn't need her like she didn't need him painting yeah. he as her and it changed it changed the um the kind of frisson of the scenes because it meant she's driving it even though she's not pushing like in a kind of classic protagonist way it meant that she was like well you're actually not I don't need you to be I don't need you to be successful I need you to love me you know which is different to her waiting to be loved she's just like I'm here I'm the I'm I'm boss lady, come to me, you know, on my terms, which yeah. is going to be five years, P.S. You know, so anyway, it was, it's just sort of thinking about things like that that we had lots of robust conversations about.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like, you know, what you're saying, again, that, that, that parallel with being like a female director and coming into a male space, mm-hmm. I think what was interesting as well was that the, the male characters were really nuanced and I really got that feeling of like how we, it can feel like a male space but often there's, um, uh, you know, men on set who really fully have our backs Mm. and I feel like Mm -hmm. that really came across with the Fred character and that it was really moving to me that. Yeah, I think that was really
1: something we all agreed on too, that she had these, I mean, in a way we saw Fred as almost being like an anti-mentor, like in a way he was sort of forced to kind of take her under his wing and, and it sort of, forced it brought back to him the things that he had relinquished himself that he'd lost sight of his own sense of punk rock or whatever like he'd been he'd become a company man and he was so obsessing about like making money and producing something quote-unquote new for this factory and that he wasn't actually just free anymore to just like and he sees this young woman who's just so full of ideas and it's like wow like where have I what have I become kind of thing so rather than being oh pop it I'll take you by the hand and lead you there it's almost like she's just like boom here I am and he's like oh shit what have I become so I thought that was kind of cool but and then and then when he says to her um you know sometimes you have to learn when to stop
0: yeah
1: and it's like to us it was like so many times and it's not to say in any way like the spirit of it as you say is not to be in any way saying, oh, it's just pro-women and anti-men. We wanted it to be a celebration of humanity and the things that we do to react to circumstances, we only take what we've got. You you know, there's no reference point for this woman. Of course people want to stop her, you know. It's weird and she's working class and she's really brash and her potty doesn't look like anything that's been made before. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like she's like an alien and no one wants to see her like you know, don't think that she can succeed because there's no reference point. And then also her just going, well, it's the way that you guys are actually doing things, like the way you're selling it. You know, it's just like, oh all right. But like, yeah, just this thing of of him being, um, in some ways, wanting to help her, but not knowing how. What is the language around success? What is the language of leadership when you are in a position to support someone? And it's not that he's doing it from a from a place of of wanting to let her you know squash her creativity he just doesn't know and it's no harm no foul because ultimately I think he does learn and that's the journey for his character is that at the end of the film he's like a fan and his wife's a fan and still sort of like bizarre or whatever but it's you kind of get the impression that he's not begrudging and he never was he's just he's learned something which has shifted something in him in which he can truly see her greatness and I think he could always see her greatness but he could never connect the dots of that to the world in which he worked in and you know it always had to be by the rules like oh oh you know you you have to do this to be there and she's like okay you know no, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I kind of think that's cool. But you know, and I think Collie is probably the the most innovative of the men in the story. Like where he just doesn't really initially even care if she's a woman or a man. Like it's like may, may the best idea win at this point because we're gonna we're gonna all we're going to be unemployed and poverty stricken in five seconds time kind of thing if we don't. Like it, the impression should have felt like it, there's a lot of pressure happening on him to make a decision about what to do next and he's kind of casting about for options which are all not working. And so I think the fact that he chose her wasn't because she was cute or wanted to get her into bed but that it was more, it was opportunistic and purely about the money, mm. um, which is which means he's sort of, blind to her womanness or whatever not to say that that's what we wanted anyway but yeah you're right that was really important that we weren't trying to say just because you're a woman gives you a right to something it it does but it's also about the quality of the ideas and being able to listen being able to take a second to actually you know let the mm. let people around you hear you which i think is part of the problem sometimes people just aren't prepared to listen
0: And it felt that, um, you know, there was that love of crafts that they all had. That's what kind of feels like another parallel for being a director. And there's a moment when they look at that, I think it's the little face that she does of Fred, and they just all love the craft of it. And it's a bit like when everyone looks at a monitor and sees a cool shot, and everyone has that (laughs) little, you know, vibe. like taking that. And so, so much of how they said things, like you know, when he said you, you like you said, um, sometimes you just need to know when to stop. Like that's a line on paper that could really read one way, mm-hmm. but it didn't, you know. And so that kind of brings me to like your process, you know, with the actors and rehearsals and improvisation. And so, what was your? Did you have rehearsals? And if so, how many days? And what did it all look like?
1: I really love rehearsals. I love working closely. Um, I i mean because we had this covid problem we did a lot of chats over uh, zoom we um i did manage to convince the producers which it was really good of them to do a, a full cast read through um which was difficult to org- organize but it felt really important that we were like a troop and that we all understood what were the kind of important things of the story and that we all were a team and um and then I, I made a lot of, there was a lot of training involved. Uh, we had a lot of support from, you know, there was a lot of business that needed to be done of all the, the making and the, it needed to feel like you could believe what they were doing. I, I find it really annoying when you watch a movie and you feel like people are just faking it and you're like, you've never done that before, ever. You know, it had to feel like they were really, you know, you just wouldn't think about it, like that it could feel natural. So, yeah, we did a lot of workshops and training. Uh, We had videos that we would give them, lots of documentaries, lots of books to read. And then breaking down character, finding, I I really like to find a psychological gesture for for that character. Um, uh, Phoebe kind of figured out this thing about her hand behind her neck and thinking about like a solidity of her character, thinking about shoes and footwear, I think is really important, like how she wears her clothes, like, she's not thinking about her silhouette she's not she's just chucking stuff on and and also there's not like a costume for every scene. It's just like she's got a wardrobe with like one dress and maybe two smocks and a Sunday best and she's got the same boots that might have been her dad's and she's got to be a bit of a dag, you know, like she can't feel like she's this gorgeous. You know, In the, I have to say in the earlier scripts there were many scenes where she would come out looking gorgeous and I'm just like, no, we're not having scenes when she comes out gorgeous. Maybe in London, but that's it, like the one dress. But like, yeah, it, it was sort of like... I think thinking about physicality, like think you know, working with David, who's very Stanislavski, and I, I really love that—that that he kind of really he has to feel very embedded and detailed about the way he approaches his role. And we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, how he would hold himself and what was his backstory and how we could make that feel really felt in in the in the world of that story. How he holds space for those men and how there's something a little bit sad about him, not sad, but just lost. Like he's lost himself in all this business around him. And how does he reclaim that in some way, his own dignity? Um uh, Matthew, you know, I mean he's just such a dream. He's such a thoroughbred. Like you just I just think he's just uh, I mean talking a lot with Matthew, figuring out um he's got a big brain as well, which I really like. Like he thinks kind of thematically and he can see every opportunity and it's kind of cajoling him into you're not cajoling him but like it's kind of figuring out how to dissect the material and figure out how to make choices and I think he just he'll just go and go and he's he's so warm and collaborative and he was so wonderful with Phoebe too like we did spend quite a few uh, rehearsal sessions with the two of them and also with David and um, Phoebe and with the, that group of men in that modeler shop, it felt like a really important space to get right. Uh, a lot of them were non-actors; they were sculptors and actual modelers that were from Stoke, that were actual makers. So there was only H, Adrian Rollins, um, David Morrissey. Um, that, yeah, there was yeah three actors actually in that space, um, and then the rest of them were all non-actors. So getting them together and having them just forget that they're on camera. And having them understand, having te- having them teach each other what they would do, and having them come up with ideas. Like I, f- I feel like if they're experts, they should tell a lot of, they should do a lot of the storytelling um, for us. Um, so they had lots of great ideas. And actually, um, gorgeous Mark, um, he is the sculptor that made the Fredkinstein, yeah. and he also did the um, the the sculpture of Rachel um, of. Uh, Oh, His yeah. Collie, yeah. yeah, and he was actually in, all, he's in the modeler's shop as well. He plays, he plays himself. Um, so, yeah, a lot of rehearsal. The girls, it was really important to me. They became a little army and we got together and we did a lot of off-script improvisations, kind of working on their camaraderie. It felt like I was a little worried that they were so, they weren't on screen for a long time. They all had to feel kind of like they had personalities and lives and we kind of, had this like fantastic smorgasbord of young actresses you know and they were all brilliant and they all I you know (laughs) they came with their you know we had lots of discussions about who they were what they did they all had I I kind of forced them to think about like holy objects what was their color what was their family you know really nutting that out so it may not feel like you know anything but about them but you kind of feel it maybe I feel like you do feel like work even if it's not spelt out and then also the the essence of their interaction when they make bazooka. Um, yeah, I made I made them make a bazooka out of Amazon boxes, which <laughs> took about an hour, and they made the most awesome bazooka, and then I made them paraded it around the production office. <laughs> um, yeah, we did some mad stuff. I mean, I kind of do a lot of games, but they're kind of focused games for off script in pro and um, yeah. That's but um, yeah. Yeah. Oh,
0: sorry. Go on. yeah, no, no. Okay, I, I, it... I
1: tend to talk, so you're gonna just tell oh, me. Oh,
0: I love it because um, <laughs> that that kind of reminds me of like. Um, you know, when you were saying it was a bit of a love in when you met the producers, and then I saw like the scenes like you were saying, where, you know, they're all doing, you know, when they've set up their kind of um female department, the you know, the bizarre department, and there it's got the music and it's got the flowers and it's got that sense of life and and I was like, oh, is that what is that what your shoot was like? Is that the kind of atmosphere you get on your shoot? Like
1: Well In a way, I mean I kind of feel like the tone set in rehearsal. Um, giving the permission, it's sort of a bit of a bastardised Mike Lee approach I guess is what I really like to do where I get, I feel like the actors are the custodians of their character and they and I need to decide what are those big decisions about what you want to feel about them on screen and then do whatever it needs, whatever you need to do to get that to be as truthful as possible. I, I personally find, I really enjoy process, I really like actors that are willing to put that work in and I know a lot of actors can can. Just turn up and be able to do all that work themselves. But I really think that I really like doing that work with the actor, um, not doing it for them, but giving them permission to kind of go deeper and deeper into their character. So that when you know, because they may only want to be on screen for a few minutes, but you want to feel like you can it can pop forward and can find something that has a bit of sparkle that you can kind of remember. Hopefully, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the pro- that's kind of the theory anyway.
0: And when you did like your 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 little workshops with the improv and stuff, uh, how did you bring it in? Did you bring it into the sides? Did you have the writer there and then? What was that yeah,
1: like? I did. I I often um, take notes and take things down, and I often you know will do an do some sort of moved improv around a certain particular like a particular question or it's an an energy that we're trying to explore and then we'll kind of pull back and sit for a second, talk about it and then and I'll get them to take notes as well and remind me. <laughs> Sometimes I might forget. what well, I wasn't able sadly to get Claire into that process because she was in Wales and there was all this COVID thing going on. But um usually I do. I usually I really like to have the writer involved as well because then you can cherry pick and they can but what Claire did is I did furnish her with ideas and thoughts that had come back. And then what we ended up doing is writing because one thing that I found really tricky is in scenes where you want it to feel like everyone's enjoying each other's company, I, I mean, no offence to, you know, you, you do want to feel like the actors can, some actors can't riff, you know, like some can, some can't. Yeah. And, and so I did get Claire to write dialogue. Mm-hmm. So they all had something to say um, in the scene, like when they take the tea and stuff and in the window some of it was impro, actually, straight-up impro, but they did have uh, like a bit of a, you know, like a skeleton that they could work with with some scripted ideas that they could bounce off just so they felt comfortable and a lot of them were things that we took from rehearsal.
0: And how long before the actual shoot was a rehearsal? So how many prep days did you have and then how many shoot days did you have?
1: So we had two weeks of rehearsals, which was also in tandem. We had tests and we had... Um, Training boot camp, as I was calling it. So they all had to kind of go off and do their various things because there was painting, there was lithography, there was sculpting and clay work. There was also understanding what the pots was like what the time meant, Mm -hmm. having them watch things, going on visits to Wedgwood, and you know, doing certain things. Like I just wanted them to kind of feel like they could absorb the world a bit. Um, so yeah, we had two weeks. Um, Of rehearsals, and then the shoot was uh, five and a half weeks. Yeah, is that five day
0: weeks or five day
1: weeks? Yeah, and we shot probably four and a half plus pages four and a half, five pages a day.
0: That's pretty challenging. How did you find
1: that? That was it, was a lot, Um, a lot of prep a lot of planning i i I really like to work really closely with my heads of department i like to do a lot of um like photographic storyboards Mm -hmm. um thinking about what the space is going to be i think all that work like with the actors really helps a lot i know a lot of i know there's like a bit of a trend for i mean not everyone's into working with actors i really like working with actors i feel like that's part of our craft um, it seems to be a dying craft for some reason. I talk to actors and they say, oh, I didn't get any notes, so I didn't talk to my director this entire shoot. And you kind of realise that it becomes that time and money ratio that you just so under the pump that you just have to trust that the actor can make the right choice, you know, because you just don't have time to do your job or that part of your job anyway, not to say that it's not right or wrong. But, yeah, I think I think it's really, I feel it's a false economy sometimes, I think, to not to scrimp on rehearsals because that's where you get to... Build rapport, and you get to figure out, ask those questions. You don't want to be dealing with that later, and yeah. you know, suddenly on set they're like, "Oh, why am I me?" And you're like, oh, "Yes, yeah,
0: I, so I, I feel know? like you got the most interesting version of 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 those things And so you know, um, it felt. I felt it's really paid off. I could feel it paying Thank off.
1: Thank you, enough. Tinge.
0: Oh, I've got the I've got yeah. the answer to
1: the it lenses. Is.
0: Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. What is it? Zeiss Zeiss Super Speeds, coated and uncoated. The uncoated gave the uncoated gave us the best flares and blooms. It's because we did blooming. That was the other thing we um we tested was um color blooming. So we created a little rig that would change color for these particular emotional color scenes we're talking about. Um, and what did it do? Did it shoot like
0: light, light into the lens to give a colored flare?
1: Yeah. So yeah. it was like a little. I don't know. Denson could probably make some money out of this one. I think. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) it was was like like a little. He could program into it. It was just a little tiny, almost like a sort of LED panel that could kind of. You could program what colour you want to be very specific about the colour as well. It could get like a certain indigo and violet and orange and. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: Colour box and sell it. Yeah. Split the IP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that my last thing would be about, you know, the way she's, she's talking about, uh, you know, presenting stuff for women, and it felt like, you know, that there was a layer of people, a layer of people second-guessing what the audience of women would want in their pottery, mm. and that felt a bit like being a female director sometimes, communicating with female audiences through a veil of male execs and uh, mm. was there anything around that for you I
1: definitely i think there's probably like a little sleight of hand <laughs> a lot of these things i find it quite amusing this weird dialectic where we're still trying to work out our own language and how to communicate in these rooms and the intersection of being very precise with our language and using a language that's very useful you know to articulate Um, the formal elements that we play with what's in the frame and you know technically how to do things but also there's an emotional language which I think is often a deficit that we we bring so much to like obviously leadership and multitasking you know but I think being able to um to riff and collaborate is part of our one of our, our strong suits um you know I hope I think yeah, so I think that emotional language was also important for Clarice, you know, and that's part of her journey is to learn how to be more emotional because I think her, daughter, her, her relationship with Dot was Dot was emotional but she didn't really know how to put that into practice um, and she sort of is undone by romance in a way. She's un, she loses, she break, she's sort of got a broken heart and she can't pull herself out um, and Clarice needs to learn how to play in the sandpit with other women you know she's kind of she kind of is a sort of lone wolf and then she learns to embrace the community of women that's how I sort of saw it a little bit like there was there's a lot of solidarity in that third act that was sort of her not only trying to talk to others that may not want to listen but also finding her family and finding that it's not that far from what she really always had, that, that there's creativity and voices to be embraced right next to her and they're all going to be part of it um, if she'll let them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really lovely. That's really moving. I can really, I, I, I can see that now. And actually when she, when, she, when she loses everything, it's almost like there's a chink in that lone wolf armor that reconnects her to her women. Do you? Mm, definitely. That's yeah, really lovely. And
1: thank you so much, Tinch. It's been such a pleasure and you're such a great filmmaker. Those questions were really good and oh. I appreciate that. It's been really nice, actually. I really appreciate that. Yeah, Look i, I to love to meet you in soon. person. Oh, yeah, i do, yeah, love to meet
0: in person. I've, I've learned so much from that. That was so cool. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.